Hi, Ryan. Hello, Rachel. How are you doing? Oh, I am doing very well. I'm as excited as Byron letting us know if he's had any sleep, which means we're going to be regaled with a few lifetimes worth of stories in this recording today. But Rachel, are you excited at all? Are you happy? How are you doing? All right. Just all, all, all right. Are you channeling Trace from the last episode? Mm-hmm. We've had some feedback on that uh, already. It's it's just coming in. Everyone's flooding it. Debates are had. Was that accent British? Was it Australian? I think we need more people to let us know because there hasn't been a consensus on it, and so we're I left don't know with if Dick one and can Ham. Be reached. No, no, none can be I think reached. It, I think it will remain a hypothesis because it cannot be firmly tested and proven to be fact. And we can't ask the actor what he was doing for that particular performance. But Rachel, please uh, inform everyone about our podcast and uh, what we are doing here today. We are the Yum Yum Podcast, a husband and wife team that... For the time being, are uh, doing science fiction-based podcasting, where we are watching shows and discussing them. This particular episode is about Babylon 5. But Yum Yum did not come from Babylon 5. It came from Star Trek Discovery, where... The universe was changed by, well, it was prompted by Michelle Yeoh, Oscar winner. Academy Award winning actress. Yes. uh, Asking another individual Mm -hmm. who was being paid to be on set. Future Academy Award winning actress, sure. It's a 50% guarantee that she could win an Oscar because that scene had two people, half of them won, has won an Oscar after they stopped doing Discovery, and that poor actress who's do, who does none, she still turns up from time to time. So we don't know if she will win an Oscar in the future, so I'm putting my money on the table now. And it's Commander Nandi who responds to a question with yum yum. And it has nothing to do about food. In fact, she was asked, hey, you want to go murder that dude? Not phrased that way. No, of course not. Michelle Yeoh is too classy to phrase it like that. But it was such a, just a profound, uh, abstract, enlightening, uh, basically it changed everything for us and we had to name the podcast after it and we do so much else with Yum Yum, as well as just inform you of the history of it and to remind every single person that listens to this podcast that that, that was a piece of writing that passed. If you are a struggling writer and you think to yourself, hey, is this too much in my script? Go back to that moment in Star Trek Discovery and realize you could go further. You could go way further with what you're doing. So. It's also inspirational. But Rachel, are you keen to hear what episode of Babylon 5 
we will be discussing today. I know the episode. I am excited to hear again the JMS written DVD description for this episode. As as people who are rewatching the series, we are deeply familiar with the episodes, the numbers, and even the titles, but it's these DVD descriptions that are always a new surprise to us, because how often are you reading the DVD description once you've already gone through the show? But on this podcast, that's the difference. Also, it's a way of us bragging that we do own this on physical media, and that's very important today. But this is episode six, Strange Relations. Revelation of Sheridan and Lockley's past romance fuels Garibaldi's suspicions. Meanwhile, <laughs> Rachel, mm-hmm. he, JMS dropped a meanwhile there. Meanwhile, the captain outwits Psychor Cop Bester, and Malari's new bodyguard turns out to be the last person he'd expect. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. correct. It's Abel Horn. He returned. Everyone? Abel Horn. Hmm? No, his new bodyguard is actually Duncan. You remember you you know Duncan? Yeah. From from Exogenesis. He went amongst the stars and has returned. He woke up special. Yeah. He woke up special. He is grieving Marcus. Oh man, where was that scene of, of Duncan? feeling the death of Marcus through the cosmos and crying about it and planting a flower in some dirt on some alien planet in in memory of Marcus. Oh, remember when Marcus was here? Now we have Byron. And that leads so perfectly into what was the... Per- like, what entity had... Yye, yum yum energy. Because I'm 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 expanding it out. It doesn't even have to be a person at this point. Oh, because okay, because what's your pick then? If you're expanding it, oh Byron's non-human at this point. I don't even know what fucking level he's on. That speech he gave to Lita about lifetimes and I, you know, what? I'm gonna lump it in. Robert Atkins. I I have <laughs> I have no evidence he's human. <laughs> I have no evidence that Robert Atkin Downs is of this realm. He could be some supernatural being. Because because that fucking scene is insane. And I don't know how anyone could live, like, actually survive the sheer amount of YYE, yum yum energy, required to give that. And Pat Tolman... She is a legend of the screen she because she the full brunt of that, and she is always great at the reaction shots and giving a good quip. And she she shoots all of that shit down with Marcus and uh, with Marcus with Byron. Oh, how I miss Marcus! But Byron and just cuts through it and says, "Oh, okay, so you avoided the answer with some flowery dialogue that JMS wrote, but give me a fucking answer." Uh, it has to be Byron. Byron had so much YYE. Best is always great, and, and Walter Koenig was smiling so much. But, man, just Robin Atkin Downs. He just, he just stands out as the actor who wants to lick his lips. He has long hair to throw back and wants to say yum yum, but JMS just kept saying, no, Byron, no. 
No, Robin Atkin Downs. You save that for future voice acting work in a video game. I would not be surprised in the slightest if Robin Atkin Downs has said yum yum in one of his video game roles. Nerds? Give me the audio clip for that and tell me what game it's from. It has to be out there somewhere in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of voice acting work he has done. He had to have said yum yum in a silly uh, video game voice. It's game time. I throw it over to you. Who had YYE? It's Byron. It's no contest. And that means that we're... Experiencing the full brutal force of the Byron arc. And I don't want it. Why? Because I don't like it. Ryan, I don't like the Byron arc. Oh, well, we will. I like Lisa. I like getting more Lisa. Mm -hmm. That's good. Do you not like having to listen to Byron? We will touch base on where we are with the Byron arc more firmly as this discussion proceeds forward. But let's go into a little bit of our history and relationship and thoughts on strange relations. And I often overlook this episode because it has a few standout moments that I do not like. And Mm -hmm. so it taints the rest of it in my memory. But when I actually sit down and watch it, I actually really enjoy this one. I have a great time with it. I have so many moments where I'm genuinely genuinely laughing at things that are happening in here. I think the way that uh, the conflict is brewing with the telepath colony is uh, done very well. Lockley... Uh, as someone who is becoming more comfortable with how Babylon 5 runs and the people that she has to face off against is like it is, it is just clicking into gear but there are just some moments that are burned too much into the brain of being negative so i'm talking about Lockley's revelation when it comes to her past with Sheridan i think it's dumb i don't like it i like that scene where it's revealed, I I actually, when it comes to uh, Lockley, she is very pivotal in Garibaldi's development in the fifth season, and I think they work really well together. Both the actors play off one another really well, but those characters just are uh, electrifying to watch. But that revelation I don't like, and Byron, he just... He just can't stop being Byron, and that Willow speech, although worthy of a Yum Yum Energy Award, and we give it in our little spreadsheet to him, it also gives scorn as well. I scorn him for that. I I can't believe that's in here. Just how could you, JMS? It's like he, he writes Byron's dialogue to specifically torture me, and I know that I'm not alone. You don't like it, and many people don't like it. But I just, it, it feels like he personally hates me when he puts that stuff in there. As someone who wants to defend a lot of his, uh, you know, his writing style that can be rambly and poetic, Byron is just something that exists to, to say, why do you bother doing that, Ryan? 
Uh, With Strange Relations, uh, how do you feel about it overall? What has been your journey with it? Fairly similar to you. I don't think of this episode fondly, but when I'm watching it, I'm not having a bad time. And there are bits of it that I do like. I genuinely like the Jakar stuff in this episode. He's just gleeful. And I like seeing happy Jakar. He is a scamp in the first few episodes of this season. He is just delighting in being someone that people can rely on. And then he delights in being a devilish little scamp because he is given the opportunity to just ruin Londo's mood in multiple ways. We get and a, he is so a happy. A number about of it. really good. Ooh. Ooh. No, I can't do that, but I will do it. Ooh. He is just so catty in in this one. And I, I'm totally on the same page with you. He, although gets very minor moments, they are moments of levity and joy. And that is balanced really well in Strange Relations. This has a lot of serious things going on, uh, but it is always brought back down to reality with some touching moments, some moments of connection, some moments of intrigue, and moments of humour. I have here in the notes to launch off on Garibaldi versus Lockley, because they are very much hitting one another with their personalities. And they and have a conversation where they really lay that out. Garibaldi is a suspicious man. This was his undoing and downfall in the fourth season. And I, I, just, I just really like that it hasn't gone away. He spent an entire year trapped like that, And he has not tried to change that at all. And he is aware his personality is something that hurts himself and those around him. But you can't just click your fingers and go, oh, I won't be suspicious anymore about anything. And with how Bester screwed with him. That that there's 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 a roads you can go down. You can go down the way of Jakar, where you have this uh, enlightenment and this spiritual awakening. You can go down the road of Londo, where you become a darker, embittered person, and he had to dig himself out of that. Or you you have Garibaldi, which is a very similar thing, which is he's he's it's almost like he has doubled down on it, and he's made a a new fucking career out of it, and. What are your thoughts on that? Because we went through extensively during our fourth season discussion that the lead up to him being programmed in the way he was made a lot of sense yeah. because it was just an intrinsic part of who he is. But It's just adjusting the dials. It's just ad- adjusting those dials. But now that has happened to him and he and he made such a mess of things and, and Besto was responsible for, responsible for doing that to him, how do you feel about the the aftermath of it and how Garibaldi has shifted in it in this particular way? It tracks. It feels a 
bit like confirmation bias because he was right to be suspicious. He was right to hate telepaths and uh, his experiences may well reconfirm and solidify those beliefs. Captain, your guest got inside Mr. Garibaldi's head, reprogrammed and messed up his life. Hell, he almost got both of us killed. I'm aware of that, sir. The reports do a very good job of putting across his side and yours. Now, would you like to hear my side or would you rather continue shouting? If the latter, please let me know so I can sit down and get comfortable. He is literally skulking around in corners of corridors. Like, that's how, I, I was going to say pathetic he is, because he he's kind of pathetic. He started out creeping in tubes. Yes. Lockley and Delenn are patching things up. Delenn is an inquisitive person, and yet it doesn't consume her every, like, moment of life. But Garibaldi, it really is something that consumes him. Lockley and Delenn have have a nice conversation. They're very mature. It's it's uncomfortable, clearly. Lockley wishes that she was able to speak her piece on the matter, more so than what has transpired. And Delenn... Oh, she wished that John had just never told Delenn. And if he was, she would have liked to have been brought in on it because it is also something that... Isn't like her story as well. It's her story as well, and it compromises her position on the station because she's thinking about it from her job more more so than as like an individual level. She's thinking about her job. If this gets out, this could really ruin a bunch of things. And Delenn, who's also a professional, understands. And that was wonderful. It was one scene. They're not making a big fanfare no. or deal or, or shit fight out of these two women. It, Delenn, she she talks to Lockley as a professional, as somebody who is in a committed she's relationship. There as an ambassador more than she's there as John's wife. And even as somebody who could be there as John's wife, Mirafelon plays it with a sense of security there because... John's John's her partner. There's no threat there. Lockley's not a threat to the sanctity of their love and their marriage and their commitment to one another. It's more the betrayal of trust that Lockley was somebody assigned to Babylon 5 and Delenn was not given the full story as to why she was assigned to B5 because her being a former romantic partner of John is the major reason he assigned her because he knows he can trust her because they have such a close yeah. relationship. Yeah, and I do think I think that that's a large part of it, but I think it is also because she was on the other side of the war. It's a strategic move with in that realm as well. It's, well, I don't want to just pick from my own team Mm -hmm. because we need to repair this. Who could I pick? And her name would have gone straight to the top of the list. That is the brilliance of the writing as well as the character's thought process. It's not just one reason. He didn't just choose Lockley because it's his ex-wife. 
He chose her because of these political reasons. He chose her because of her professional re- uh, like status. It's a multitude of things, and that's what Garibaldi doesn't get. He didn't get it in the conversation last episode. Lockley says, guess what? There's facets to things, Mr. Garibaldi. It's not as simple as how you look at it. And that applies to this as well. Garibaldi thinks of this as just another case to solve, another mystery to uncover, and if he gets the answer to that, it means that he can be justified in his hatred of a person he doesn't know very well. Because when Garibaldi doesn't know who people are and what they stand for, he dis- like he he does not he he hates them, and or he has uh, negative feelings towards them. And what a way of being! Like, can you imagine walking around your life like that? Yeah, like th- the line that he has uh, in that conversation with Lockley. And she's just like, wow, it must really suck to walk around like that. And he's like, yeah, 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 it does kind of haunt me. But anyway. He has to keep going. That scene where Lockley is talking to Zach about why is it that this station is run the way it is? There's so much... There's so much interpersonal conflict happening. People don't sit down and follow the rules. They beat the shit out of each other, or they do duplicitous things to get what they want. Why can't they do it in the military way that I have been raised in? Why is that impossible to happen on this station? I'm so sick of it. And to give her some credit as well, we do see sprinkled throughout the episode her way of doing things is actually working. Yeah. She has a personable quality to her in her leadership style. She is out there flying the Star Fury, inspecting the damage. She's talking to the dock workers, and she's asking them to speed up the process, but she's doing it in a very familiar fashion. She is making jokes. She's saying, hey, I found that porn mag, so you better hurry up there. Corwin and her, Zach and her, there's definitely a line of hierarchy there, uh, yet you can tell she makes an active effort to relate to them on their level, while still making a firm line that she's their boss. Yep. She's not their friend. No, and that is part of her being the commander to me, is that she has to be somebody that they're willing to fight for, not against. And she does not uh, comprehend or deal well with people who don't play it the same way as her. No. Garibaldi, he's, he's he's a thing outside of her system. He had no job that she could, like, relate to in the first episode. So he made himself a job. And then in uh, A View from the Gallery, he's so bad at this new fake job that he, like, this new job he made for himself that Lockley 
has to tell him how to do his fucking job. And then, in the previous episode, he coerces her at breakfast, before the day has really started, to ask her where her allegiances lie. Garibaldi is an absolute nightmare for Lockley as a person. So, when she discovers that he has broken the rules yet again by looking at her personnel file, which we know is a common thing for Garibaldi. He mentioned that to Zach as well. Yeah, he left it in the logs. It's what I do. I did it with Ivanova, I did it with Sheridan, so it's okay. Not with Lockley. And she has that amazing speech where she's talking about how people are like pounding each other, and then she realizes this about Garibaldi, and she just says, Well, congratulations, everyone. I'm becoming like you. I'm gonna go so I'm gonna do some pounding now, and she just storms <laughs> off to to fuck up Garibaldi's day in the most glorious of ways. And uh, how well, you... he's already in jail at that yeah, point. But she is; she's now gonna like give him a firm sit down and say, "What's your fucking problem, but Mister?" He... But she also gives him what he wants. I have an obligation to be courteous, and I have an obligation to shove his face through a bulkhead. Your hobbies are your concern, Mister Garibaldi. Just do it where I can't see it, and do it quietly. Thanks, Garibaldi is in the brig because of his naughty behavior. He tried he to, to kill Besta. He tried to beat Besta the fuck up because why wouldn't he? Lockley is not having that type of uh, type of stuff while she is talking to Besta. She says that she Joking does not like him. she does not like Besta, but he he serves her purpose and we're playing this by the rules, Mr. Garibaldi, something that you <laughs> apparently want to enforce and even make. And there was this, there's this but line. You'll go against it when it's convenient. Of course. And same to with Besta. And, and same with Besta. He's the same way. But Lockley doesn't know that fully. Uh, Garibaldi says to Lockley that the reason he does not like her is because he does not know her. And she retorts, there's many people you don't know. And he says, yeah, I think about that a lot. (laughs) He is such a paranoid man. But that was the first thing he said to Sheridan when he woke up from his coma and Sinclair was gone. He sees Sheridan and Sheridan says, hey, I'm the new captain here. I'm your new boss. And he says, I don't know you. That's all he said was, I don't know you. And so this scene is a nice callback for Garibaldi and his relationship with Sheridan and how this is a a parallel to that because Sheridan and Garibaldi have become friends. That barrier of trust was eventually broken down and they became familiar with one another and they coalesced as a team. Sheridan has forgiven him fully, like just immediately. Because he knows Bester exists. If you knew Bester existed, wouldn't you just go, oh, well, it wasn't your fault? Yeah, but how do you know that the programming's really ended? Because Lita, you know, Lita who exists in this uh, episode, but, oh, man. That that Lockley just just having a go at Garibaldi for his bullshit highlight of the episode for me. Yeah, it's right up there. He's he's really uh, JMS is uh, really great 
at writing the psyche of Garibaldi. We have had many problems over the seasons with Garibaldi episodes, but Garibaldi in episodes has rarely been a problem. I don't know what it is, but I think he's better as a supporting character rather than a lead of an episode, because if this was just a Garibaldi episode through and through, I think it would Mm. fall more flatly than it does. Oh, absolutely. What do you think that is? Like, what is it about Garibaldi that makes him... He's more interesting in contrast to others than on his own. I also think his uh, perspective and worldview and how he handles it is greater in short spurts than longer because it can be tiring. Yes. He is a very grating man, and that is great in the contrast to others, as you stated. And then... We find out Lockley admits her past with Sheridan. She married him. They were married for all about three months. After, uh, what was it? Flight school, cadets, whatever. They they were in the military then. Yeah, they graduated together. And uh, they got married, fell madly in love, fell madly out of love, which I want to know what that means for Sheridan, because he's a wife guy. <laughs> I want to know. I actually like, want to know. How it, how, what does Sheridan look like when he's fallen out of love with somebody? Yeah. But I also really understand what she said, that they would be like compelled by each other and towards each other, but they wouldn't be able to take it in, in turns being in charge. Oh, I They would uh, yeah. both have to be right all the fucking time, and that would be exhausting. The revelation is not one that I particularly am a fan of, but I fucking hate it. Like I I get it, and I think JMS writes it in fairly well, but I would love it if it wasn't here. I would. I would prefer it. Why do you hate it? I think a part of it is it makes the world feel small, makes this decision feel contrived, and it's another one of the gripes that I have with the show of them being like, hey, look, other characters trust her. Like, she's new, but she's all right and... This guy's book and this guy's book. If Garibaldi can be brought over to her, then you, the viewer, should as well. Sheridan already has. He fucking married her at one point. A reason I really don't appreciate it is it raises a series of questions that the show does not want answered. No, it, and it just glosses over. And it. we it's had just a like, whole... just move on. We actually... just move on. Yes, he had a secret third wife. Move on. We did talk to Nick about in the Mac and Bo episode that that the answering of questions can be important, yes. but it also can, can disrupt. be overdone. But it can be overdone. And this series will go out of its way to cover up any little plot hole or answer any nerdy little question. And I admire that so much about it. But it can be 
stand out because it just feels artificial that characters would talk like that. But then it sets a precedent. You are so used to the show going into maybe even unnecessary detail to cover its ass about things. And there's always going to be things you can poke apart oh, anyway. Yes. And that's prevalent with any show, but it's easier to do in some ways when it comes to sci fi. And yet, this throws into the air so many fucking questions that rightfully should be analysed and discussed and explored that the series just doesn't. Just goes, and that's done now. This episode basically covers it. This episode basically covers the most we will get about their relationship formally and how it dis- dissipated. And, and like, why isn't this on the records? It, why didn't Clark and the, his group find out about it and get her? Like, there's so many things I could cinema sins and go down the list of, and I don't want to. But the thing is, it, it happens in the brain when you introduce this. And me even saying, Sheridan's a wife guy. How did this marriage fall apart? Like, what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like for him? No, no. The answers you get here is what you get. And the main reason that I really despise this is it's lazy. It's lazy in the way that you were describing, which is it is a way for the writer to cement and certify trust for us and the characters for Lockley. It's his ex-wife. So if Sheridan loved her at one point and trusts her now to run the station and basically be Avonova's replacement in the show, you, the viewer, should as well. And I hate that. And it's and, and you know what? It doesn't make the rewatch stand up either because I think it significantly reduces her character. And and maybe I'm going to speak out of hand here, and I I, I want to know from you about this. But I think it is something that just reduces her down to like a very stereotypical woman role in a narrative of like she's the girl you can trust her because she's a pretty lady that he liked. Yeah, it's the, you've got a, (laughs) you can't hate women because you have a mother, you have a, she has a a father, she has a brother, so you, you should do this. It's just like, oh, oh, okay, so she only has worth due to her connections with men. It really is uh, something that, is an exciting and uh, possibly interesting thing when you initially go through the show, but... But because we know that it goes nowhere. We know that they don't do anything interesting with it. It's just there to plug a hole. The most you get is the occasional reference to it and some humorous uh, leanings on it, but... I don't think it deepens their dynamic and relationship any more than if they were just colleagues of the past. And Garibaldi actually gives the most damning criticism of it, which is, how many wives does this guy have? And that's a funny line. But it really is, how much other crap can we pour onto Sheridan's backstory? What other things is Sheridan hiding? And... Does he have a secret child? Yeah, yeah. Does does he have a a, a secret other sibling because Lizzie's disappeared off the face of the earth? Like, when you are struggling as a writer, 
and you are in an established universe with a very rich history that the audience has been able to follow, and you are struggling for propelling things forward, it is very tempting to backfill it by just adding in some new past event to a character so that way it can justify what you are going to be doing now and proceeding forward and the viewer can't complain because come on guys people have had ex-wives they haven't talked about before i just i just don't like it and it is a very hackneyed trick that this series is often guilty of which is the ex-lover comes to the station. In this case, in this case, they run the station. Uh... It, It was an old season one trick of the old flame comes in and that means drama already is pre-built into it because you know what an old flame is like, don't you? And if you don't, you can understand it on some level. It it it's almost like it writes itself. That speech she gave to Corwin and the way she solves the problem, and the way she interacts with members of the crew was more telling to me of why Sheridan chose her than saying they have a history of a romantic style together. That is way more honest. Her being good at her fucking job, but she isn't the exact same style of leader than we've seen before on this show, that is illuminating. Not, she used to be married to John for a few months, and now you sit at home thinking about a million different things that will never be addressed. Or if they are, it is in a lampshading style where there's it's often just jokerly done. I just, yeah, and I think it significantly weakens a lot of the characters involved. Like, John is just this joke, like, ah, oh, he, he keep, he'll keep marrying people. And Garibaldi looks like a dickhead for having to put his big fat nose in the romantic past of his boss. Delenn looked like a fool last episode with how how kind of catty she was acting, although justifiably so. And again, too, Sheridan looks like a complete idiot and asshole because let's be, like, again, real genuine here, Rachel. Is it wise to put your ex-wife in charge? Like, not only just, like, strategy-wise, but, like, on a person-to-person level. Yeah, it's a bit weird. It's a bit weird. I'm sorry. I wish he hadn't told you without giving me some advance warning. No, it's all right. I force the issue. I just wanted you to know that I understand his reasons. You were the correct logical choice, and I support his decision. Lisa is here, by the way, and she's stealing medicine from the lurkers? Uh, like she's in sick bay and she's stealing medicine that's that's earmarked for uh for down below down below for severe case lurkers and she just blows it off as ah fuck them, you know you're just wasting it on them, and and I fucking adored Richard Biggs' reaction to that. He he was just stunned. Like as Franklin, he was just he was just left staggering back at just the audacity of Lita's approach to why what she is doing is good. 
And he, he is almost uh, like uh, chuckling his way through these lines about like, fucking what? <laughs> Lita, there's other ways, but just just the, the fact that she's like, you know what? Why, why should we give it to them? Give it to my people. They deserve it more. Lita. Yeah. What the hell, man? Like, I know you love Byron and all, but come on. Gee whiz. But uh, Rachel, talk us through a bit more about how Lita factors into to this story. Do I have to? Because I don't want to talk about Byron. I don't want to talk about him. Lita has a cause now. I don't want to talk about Byron. I don't want to talk about him. He's fucking Willow Speech singing at the end. Mm-hmm. Well, she tells Franklin that Byron is not like the, any other telepaths. He's a man of peace. He wants a new world for the telepaths. He wants us to stand tall and proud and not be bound by the ways of the past. Isn't that worth it, giving all of the medicine for the homeless people, the disenfranchised, to give it to but us? they are the disenfranchised to, as well. Give it to us idealistic disenfranchised people who uh, have been here for like a week? Yeah. Just political refugees before the poor. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 just <laughs> thank, th- th- thank you, Lita. Okay, good to know your priorities, honey. In all fairness to her, she has nowhere else to turn. She she's stuck with the Psycor. The Interstellar Alliance isn't helping her in any way. The only person who has been helpful to her is Franklin, and that's the thing that really kills me about Lita being indoctrinated into Byron's cult is she doesn't form a professional relationship with Franklin. He is known to be sympathetic to the telepaths. He ran an underground railroad. He is someone that is uh, skilled when it comes to working with runaway telepaths. When she says they don't want to come up here because of the medical testing and so they're afraid of doctors, I really put this on the on the shoulders of Richard Biggs, he gives this reaction of like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense, of course, but he has this twinkle in his eye of like, I could still help though. And Lita is so enamored by Byron that she isn't thinking in a in a in a logical, rational, and and um, thinking ahead. She's she's animalistic in a lot of ways. She's she's just grabbing all of this medicine and hoping no one would notice. But if she is genuine, and if Byron was genuine too in what they're trying to achieve they would form their own forms of diplomatic relations with the members of the staff it, yeah, of Babylon 5. It about it very differently. But they don't because they have no clue what they're doing. And they don't seek help in trying to do that either. Like They want to be self-sufficient. They want to be self-sufficient, but even like I think back to believers – and how they go to all of the major ambassadors for help. Your family has had a history of farming. Yeah. 
And that is in part a, an industry that you have to be self-sufficient in. But、mm -hmm. you also need to rely on other people to help you in that endeavor.、Yeah. It's not just you do it all on your own, and you just—it's not that 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 dream. You can't just decide that you're going to be self-sufficient and then just do it. There needs to be prep. You need to be helped from your community. You need to be guided through things, especially if you are living within a major society. The Amish are people who venture out. And come back like they are self-sufficient, but they also have to interact with the society around them at times. Correct, like that's a thing that happens.、Yeah. And they they're on a space station. They're shopping. They're talking to people. They're working with Garibaldi to do spy stuff. And yet, it never clicks in their brain to have sit-down talks with Sheridan or to have sit-down talks with Franklin again. I'm really fucking hammering in on, on this because Franklin is known widely to be the biggest supporter and ally of telepaths on this station that isn't a telepath himself. Yeah, when he has that conversation with Lita on Mars, where it's just like we can we we can do this, we can do this. Like when this is over, we're gonna deal with the telepaths. So that's a resource that Lisa could use, could put him in contact with Byron, and like Franklin did the whole under, yeah, underground railroad. He did that, and in this episode, he is basically offering himself up as something to help them with, and、yeah. Lisa rejects it. Yeah, we've、it's... got to do it our way. We've got to do it on our own, and that's how you fail. It's a a petulant child approach. It is. It's I can I I I I I can go to the toilet by myself. Oh no, there's no toilet paper. I'm just gonna sit here and cry. Her trust, same with the colony of telepaths in others, has been shattered. The psychor has ruined it for Byron and the rest. And the Interstellar Alliance, along with the Psycho, along with the Vorlons, has made it basically non-existent for Lita. We've been tracking her descent, and so her joining a cult of people who feel equally displaced as her is alluring. And they often do this. They they often、uh, have this guise of we are peaceful and we want to do things and we want to better the world, but. Very, very, not very often do these kind of. Let's just keep calling them a cult. Actually, want to go that extra effort to do the so-called furthering of their agenda of broadening out the the. But they get to Babylon Five, and they、mm. get to gather, and that's such a victory in itself. But they don't use that as a platform to move forward. I think they're a little bit too stuck on the idea of we are going to get our own planet. They haven't even started that idea in their head. This is as far、oh, as they've I, gone. I thought the that they said something about like we'll be here for a little while, but eventually, like we want to do this. That makes a lot more sense. But they are also Byron in particular. 
focused in on iconography and appearance because we have ridiculed, and you don't even, even want to talk about Byron, but Byron is a person that will not give you a straight answer because he doesn't have one, but he will talk and he will present himself He'll as someone. sound great. He'll present himself as somebody who has eloquent views on the world, but he really doesn't. That speech about the willow and the generations and I haven't slept is just a roundabout way of saying, I don't want to go to sleep, Lisa, because I'm so noble. I don't want to go to bed. And that is just... Do you think that's on purpose? Because we know that... Maybe? I don't know. Because we know that it all falls apart for the colony. We saw this in the deconstruction of falling stars, and we know this as people revisiting it. So this uh, gro- like grossly annoying way that Byron runs his colony and the way he talks, is it, is it, it far more... It does make it feel doomed. It does add that little bit to it of like, well, they're being this fucking incompetent. How is it ever going to work out? He's an interesting man. He's a martyr. I've seen it before. We had a guy on I.O. just like him. Real charismatic. Got this whole movement going around him. Well, there's nothing more appealing than knowing that someone's willing to lay down their life for you. And nothing more dangerous. Franklin gets a promotion. Yeah! He gets to work outside of Med Bay. Hobbs gets a little bit of a promotion as well. To uh, backfill Mm. his role. He has been asked by Jakar and Len to head up a project to sort of work preemptively on the potential issues, medical issues that might arise from more species being in contact with each other because of the alliance. As well as just it is great to have that knowledge and to use this as a gesture of some sort of the embracing of all of these cultures. If we are able to know one another, say, politically, wouldn't it be great to know each other on even a, on a biological level or a medical level? Like They are trying to make the Interstellar Alliance work on multitudes rather than just we are allies politically. Also, it's probably in the back of Franklin's mind that if that species had shared the plague stuff earlier, oh, of course, then he would have been able to save them. Mm-hmm. If they'd shared their records, the Marcab, yeah, he would have been able to prevent a massacre. This is exactly his uh, dream because. He comes to Babylon 5 and it is a port of call of all so of these excited. aliens and he gets to like, be able to examine them, catalog the them and help ship them. Hopping and yeah. and like some this space. is some space space hitchhiking. Yeah. Uh and he got to go see a bunch of things but like he was in know, the war he was in the war. You know, being on the station he gets to, you know, see all of these things and this happen is, and meet all of these species. And this is 
the ultimate form of what his career path and dream and goals are leading towards. He gets to be the head guy of a whole, like, consort, like, a whole, like, alliance worth of alien races, and he gets to have dozens upon dozens of alien uh, species medical records, and he gets to overlook them and exchange them, and he is now doing something that he's never done before, which is he's going to be positioned into uh, working diplomatically. Because they say you will have to talk to some of these ambassadors. You will have to weasel your way through some of their cultural customs to get these things. Because this is a level of trust in itself. Of People don't want to give over these uh, this uh, information because it's deeply personal. And people have their different views on it. And I completely understand it. But what I really want to praise about this episode is... Franklin doesn't get too much to do. But his little story here and him getting a little promotion is not just great as hey this will be a thing to uh, propel him into the future of the series and also like long game this is the last season so you know at the end of the season this will be his job and he won't be on Babylon 5 anymore but he allows all of these other things to happen in the other plots so Jakar in this scene is saying, I wish I had more to do. Because he sees that Franklin is getting something to do, and Jakar... Having that purpose in it. It's only him, it's only Franklin that can do this job. And so what else can I do, Delenn? And so Delenn says, Londo has had a lot of issues lately with his safety. Somebody just tried to blow him up. He has There's an explosion in this episode, right? There is, and there's actually two, because the docking bay gets fucked up at the beginning, yeah. and that explodes, and then Londo's ship to Centauri Prime explodes. Londo has to become emperor soon, and he has made many enemies. Inevitable. It's inevitable, and it's a horrible thing. We know it is, and so does he. Zach doesn't know why it's a horrible thing. He he's a yeah. come on, isn't that kind of like the dream Emperor Malari the first? Oh, you mean the second? There was another guy, and it did not end well for him. Can we all go back and look at that scene and zoom in on Jeff Conaway's face when he finds out that there was a previous Emperor Malari? He looks disgusted to yeah. hear that. He's like, I can't believe there was another one because he was putting on like a false. Uh, compliment to Londo, like, hey, hey, you get to be the emperor, emperor. Mal-. He was trying to just be nice, but you could, you know, Zach does not like Londo and does not want, like, the idea of Londo they being were never friends and never are, and the idea of Londo becoming an emperor disgusts Zach as it would if you were like <laughs> Zach. Of course, the guy that should have power. He sucks. Londo sucks. He doesn't deserve this. And Londo says, no, no. I do deserve it because it is going to be very bad for me. Yeah, and uh, to the rest of us, I feel. And it's just like, no, no, you fucked shit up already, Londo. He's going to get... This isn't the start of the downfall. But this is going to be where he gets fucked. Yeah. He's fucked he's others. He's more personally fucked over. His soul he... is going to get fucked by the job, and he knows because he has future <sighs> dreams yes. about it. 
But Jakar gets assigned as Londo's bodyguard because it would be really they funny. Pick her over the aisle seat. It is. It is just so deliriously wonderful and it's joyous, delightful. It's that just the delightful. reason Jakar accepts this storyline is because it would be really funny. It would be really funny to piss off all of these centauri in this most important place, this place that I was fucking tortured. You know what? Uh, I want to take some of that power back. I think that would be fun. Best is here because Byron and the colony of freaks are... on the station, and uh, they have rights to arrest them and take them away because we didn't agree to any political asylum. We're the psycho. We uh, run things our own way, and <laughs> Besta comes on the station, and they give him a glory shot, like the camera zooms in on him, and it gives him this wonderful composed image of, yes, it's him. We've gone to that stage where, where Bester comes on board that even the show is happy to see him. Yep. Hey, look, it's Bester, and the music swells, and, and you, they may as well just play audio of us at home rubbing our hands together going, ooh, baby, because aren't you just happy to see him? Yeah. Yeah. Is it bad that I'm rooting for him because I know that he is anti-Byron? <laughs> Like, Best is a bad guy, and he's a Nazi, but I, 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 I want to see him and his bloodhound units fuck up that colony real good. And that's not what I should be feeling, but... No. Best is such a well-written and performed character that there is a... There is a... We've gone to the stage where Bester is so fun to watch, and he's still intimidating, but... I mean, I don't know how to necessarily uh, articulate this, but have we gone to the point where Best is too fun? I think in a way we have. Because when I say we are so keen for the episode that's basically a day in the life of Bester later on this season, that's underselling it. Best is one so much and so greatly that I can't help but be happy for him. Like, I know there are some viewers, and I have actually been one of them, that roots for him in the way of, I can't wait to see you fucking get yours because you've been giving it to everyone. Uh, but no. You, you, you don't feel that way anymore. And you have definitely off mic. I don't know. can't remember if you just said this on mic. But you're like... He's not the kind of villain where it would be satisfying to see him get his comeuppance. You don't even like the idea of what happens to him in the novels. Besta is so well positioned that it would be dishonest if a character just straight up killed him in the way that you would maybe want out of a villain like him in a narrative. He is just... Walter Koenig is having the time of his life, and so I'm happy for Bester coming on. I'm laughing 
at things he does and says when he's drinking coffee. You want to hear the rest of that joke that he was telling Lockley, don't you? They have insert shots of him smiling devilish, like like a devil, like a little demon, when Garibaldi is yelling about how evil Bester is, and he just smiles like, yeah, I'm evil, so what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? He he knows when Lita is seeing the telepaths get arrested and rounded up, he senses her and he turns his head and gives that grin, that smirk, that shit-eating grin. Oh. I, I, I don't know why this is the word that comes to my mind with that particular look, but it's perverted. There's just yes. something about the way he He's looks. getting off on it. He gets off on it. He, he gets off on this. That's it. He, he gets off on this. The fake concern for when Lita is slapping away these bloodhound units with her brain powers. Oh. oh, straining you, isn't it? How many times can you do that, Lita? Can you do just one at a time? Maybe two? How about three? About a half dozen of us. They round up Byron's gang. They round up Byron and he looks creepy. Like it's a they shoot it and I and I wonder like what the intention is. When the bloodhound units rush at Byron, he is silhouetted and framed, and Robin Atkin Downs has this expression on his face of villainy. What do you think of that? Yeah, it makes me think that he's fucked some psychops up. Yes, that is the first real sign, openly, of there's something wrong with Byron. Because we have just been picking up on vibes, and we've actually been arguing about whether it is correct to like paint him as this evil like sex cult figure, because it's been purely through aesthetics and nothing else. And although this is still an aesthetic... There is far more of an explicit mood behind it of he's just standing there waiting for them. And he clearly has a past with them. Yeah. And it makes me wonder. I don't think I've really thought about this in previous watches. But the fact that, like, Garibaldi has that conversation with Lockley. And she's just like, until he does something against me. I don't have anything against Besta. And I wonder if that's the way that we're also meant to feel about Byron. He hasn't done anything wrong against our crew that we've seen. We've only seen him him do good things. Correct. But there is an unsettling quality. And that also goes for Besta from Lockley's perspective. It's her ideology that she was saying in the last episode about why she didn't turn from the Earth Alliance, even though all of these things were going wrong. She did not get her moral line crossed, so she followed the orders. She does not like Byron. She rejected his offer. Sheridan went over her head and accepted his offer. And instead of feeling any uh, hatred or animosity towards Byron, what does Lockley do instead? She sides with Byron because he is under her jurisdiction. 
she may not like him or approve of him or really care about what his goals are. But weighing that against what the Psychor is offering instead, Byron was here first. She, under the command uh, structure and hierarchy and, and, and things, has to follow what Sheridan has been putting down. She has her orders. And she has her worldview. And although we may disagree with it at times, it is concrete of how they have been implementing it with her character. That is consistent. She knows Bester because he helped her in the past, so she sees him in a positive light, but she's not an idiot. She knows that there's something wrong with him and the psychore, and so she has a eureka moment talking to Franklin about his new job. Again, Franklin and his job and his promotion helps bring out so many elements of the story that you may not have expected, but it was still fun. It's important. That, oh, these guys have been traveling around, and so we need to quarantine them, and so the cycle can't get them for 60 days, and so I've solved one problem, but that means more problems are now here. I've got to do it in pieces. Yeah. Back to her fundamentals of who she Mm -hmm. is. This is a fantastic episode for Lockley, something that I forget when I look back on it. I remember her being revealed as the ex-wife. I remember her conversations with Garibaldi, but I completely forget about how this does a very thorough job of examining her character, both in an interpersonal way with someone like uh, Garibaldi and, hell, even Bester, because she does flip her her uh, her viewpoints on Bester during the course of the episode. She is very friendly with yeah. him, and then by the end of it, she has to lie to him yeah. and, and play a poker face mm-hmm. with him and yep. she succeeds mm-hmm. uh, and then obviously but only because of the goodwill that she cultivated before because she plays it by the rules she does it by the book and this episode really examines what that is and how that looks and how that feels and I uh, you know, we're not at the ratings yet, but uh, just purely on that stuff alone, this 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 episode has done the most mm-hmm. for Lockley's character, yeah. and and it's so funny that the ex-wife angle of it added um, added almost nothing to it. Yeah, it drowns out the good. But I'm actually going to argue. I think the good when you actually look at this episode oh, and actually dig no, into uh, it is I'm, so yeah. Like it is a lot. It is a lot. But it's it's like a cherry that is overloaded with whipped cream. The cherry is still there. Still might be delicious, but it's not what you think of first, and it's not the taste that you're left with. We have a very special person to talk about in the spotlight section of the show today. The spotlight is where we give an actor or actress their and time actor is in the light. Michael Keaton, and we always talk about the film Spotlight. Okay, Rachel did it this time. She loves Spotlight, the film starring Mark Ruffalo. But we go over in the spotlight section the career, the performance, and 
life and pieces of trivia of an actor or actress that appeared in the given episode, whether they're a big role or small, guest recurring or main, and we have not talked about this man, but he did such a delightful job in this episode that we have he to... He stole from Lockley's plate. It's Josh Cox as Corwin. Corwin's been here since season one. He has been here since season one, he since got Signs. got a promotion. He got a promotion. He's had storylines about him. He's had little arcs, but he has never strayed away from being where he is, which is... The minor recurring character. He the is, guy at CNC. The guy at CNC, the guy that uh, Avoniver and Sheridan and now Lockley can rely on. And I was going to say when going into this that, oh, Josh Cox plays a thankless role. But when actually looking at him in the series, and I've been making sure to note him down as we go along, he is not given a purely thankless role. He gives so much life to Babylon 5 just by existing. He's a character that adds shadow to the show. He's not there to steal the spotlight from our main characters, but him being there and being consistently there and having those moments where he is brought into the fold or almost... In the case of his storyline. But it adds depth and dimension to the world that it feels like he continues to exist outside of when we see him. As someone who enjoys a television show that has an ensemble of characters and you have your iconic sets that you visit... It is the familiar face in the background that really helps give the sense that this is real. For instance, Friends. Iconic series, we all know it, we've all seen an episode or two from it, and when they go to the cafe, when they're chilling out there, there's that weird guy. Gunther. Gunther. And he's a funny guy, and sometimes he gets an episode about him, just like how Corwin is a funny guy who sometimes gets an episode about him in some way. And if they weren't there, the cafe would just be a place that they have scenes in. And CNC is the same way, where if Corwin wasn't always that handsome face on CNC who's dorky and nervous, it would just be a location in which exposition or dialogue happens. It would feel more like a set. I actually will be real honest. CNC is a great little set. I remember it, you know, its visuals, but I actually think about CNC. The first thing I think of is Corwin's face. Him with his dorky he's little the haircut. Third C. Yeah, he yeah, he's a third C. He's the thing that makes me think about that location and what it does and how it runs. And he's very pivotal to the show in a way that you wouldn't give him credit for as a character. And I think Josh Cox has been really great in this role throughout the entire series. He's had many different haircuts and his haircuts are a great way to show you the evolution of the series and the character himself. Because at the beginning, and I don't know if you agree with this, he had the longer hair. And I feel like Corwin was played as like the the handsome guy 
on the bridge. Like, he's the one who would turn around and be like, Commander, I'm seeing, Lieutenant Commander, I'm seeing this. Like, he had a bit more of a, a little bit more of a swag there, a swagger there. But then in season two and three, he gets a shorter, dorkier haircut. And they just went, oh, he's a dork now. You enjoy working with everyone? Yes. It's a calm, pleasant environment. I don't think I've ever seen anyone get upset here. And Corwin has such a unique position now in season five, because unlike the other two, like, unlike the other people he served under, he is actually providing a lot of important things to his boss. Avonova and even, you know, uh, uh, Sinclair and Sheridan, they know what they're doing. They have everything under control. They are very good. Lockley is new. She's a fish out of water. And instead of... He's her guide. He's the one that met her right off the ship. And that's the person she leans on. And I love that for him as a character. And I... you, you, You stole... It's a great use of him, yeah. You stole the observation, but he is so light... And, and and energetic with her that she's telling her viewpoints on the world and he ends his scene by stealing a little piece of food off of her plate and eating it and giving a cheeky grin. He would never have done that with Ivanova. Nope. He would never do that with nope. Sheridan. No, but they have a rapport together and I know in some of the movies as well he gets to be in uh, River of Souls. He gets way more to do and... He gets some really fun material, but Josh Cox has always uh, been here. What are the moments for you, whether it's in this episode or the series, that make you say, hey, I like Corwin? Because he, he's, oh, li- the, he's the, likable. The roses. The, the I don't know if it's a date. Mm, he gets conned by the florist a little bit to be like, you can't go wrong with roses. I think of him with the the bowler hat getting ready for uh, Repo and Zooty. Yeah. And he's doing little hat good. tricks yeah. on the deck. And although a weird moment in Gropos when uh, Ivanova is talking about like time or whatever and he's like well time's actually like a concept and yeah. he's yeah, this like weird existential thing he, he just said goes and he's like, real what the f- nerdy like, what the fuck Corwin and of course his ISN interview when he got a name yeah but also his promotion moment another standout for me for Corwin and I think that this was a turning point for him as well as the actor too because he is played as a comedic relief in the yeah, first few he's seasons. Lighter. He's a light touch, but when shit popped off with Earth separating and he asks Sheridan, what did we do wrong? The fact that we couldn't still list other things where we're like, oh, that was a really great Corwin moment. And he's just a secondary character. Yeah, he he could not be in the show and the show would still run smoothly, but that's also not true. This whole entire spotlight section. Different. This whole entire spotlight section, we use it as a way to peruse over the actors that play the smaller parts and on the occasion the big actors too. But 
Corwin and slash jo- Josh Cox is the epitome of why the spotlight exists. It's for us to celebrate the people who make Babylon 5, the series, keep running along. It's these actors who this is a job that they come in for. Maybe it's a guest spot or it's just a little recurring role. They fill out the background and they have their moments where they shine, whether they're just a one-off guest star or a recurring background face like Josh Cox here. And so let's go over some of the material he's done over the years, any interesting pieces of trivia. And I'm dying to know, Rachel, have you seen Josh Cox in anything before? Well, I, I, I watched the first Thor movie, and he's in that. You remember who wrote the first Thor movie? JMS. I don't know if Josh Cox got a job on that because JMS, but I would not be surprised. It's it's such a weird thing for him to be involved in, and just the, the correlation there. And he was also in Friends. He was in Friends. That is one of the ones I noted down. I remember him. Oh, I have the, the information about the episode of Friends that he was in. Oh, of course. I just want to say I remember him in an episode of Quantum Leap. Yes, I noted that down too. It was the first ever episode of Quantum Leap I saw. And it's one where Sam Ooh. leaps into the body of an elderly man who believes he was abducted by aliens. Yes. And uh, he's a uh, very it's his distinct gran- episode. I think it's his grandson in that episode is played by Morgan Weiser, who played Nathan West in Space Above and Beyond. But that was the first ever episode I saw of Quantum Leap. And it was such a monumental experience. It's not, it's not the best episode, but the premise to Quantum Mm -hmm. Leap was really well explored in the episode and it has always stuck with me as just the perfect entryway point into that series that has... You bring that up in the Lee Harvey Oswald double-parter when you're trying to sell Quantum Leap. Yes, but uh, 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 Josh Cox is in that episode as well and uh, yeah, he's great in that. But tell me about his appearance in Friends. I know you're Friends head. I'm not. She's a she's a a Rachel. Yeah, I'm married, and I'm I'm not Ross though. No. Who would I be in Friends? You're giving Ross vibes. Am I am annoying I, me? Am I Chandler? So I guess I'm Chandler. I'm Chandler because he's kind of like talky and annoying, jokey, quippy. quippy, but he's deeply insecure. That's not me though. Yeah. Um. <laughs> You yeah. got the quips of Chandler and the confidence of Joey. Thank you. Uh he was in an episode called The One with Joey's Fridge. Yay. And he was one of the three guys that Rachel needs to choose from as a date for a charity event. Oh, that's exactly the type of role I can see Josh Cox play. Can I tell you a fun little fact? So there's an actor in Baywatch who looks like Josh Cox. Now, his name is David uh, Chokchi. I don't know how to pronounce the last name. But he was in Baywatch. And I saw this when I looked up Josh Cox. He often gets mistaken for this guy. So I had to look at this actor. And it is uncanny 
how much these two look alike, except for the guy from Baywatch has a little bit more of a square jaw and blonder than Josh Cox. But the thing okay. that people may not realize is Josh Cox, although looks like a skinny little twink in Babylon 5, buff, 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 ripped. Look up Josh Cox and you'll find a picture of him with his shirt off, his tattoos, his buff. He, he looks Did you like... See- did you see what, what he's qualified as? What's he qualified as? Oh, he does jujitsu, right? That's not the one that I was thinking of. Oh, what does he do? What does he do? Helicopter rescues. He's an avid surfer. He's a really physical go-getter, and you don't see it in B5, but he is jacked as shit. And I think you do see it more in the fifth season when oh, he's yeah, wearing that yeah, shirt. Yeah, it's, it, 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 yeah, he's got definition under that shirt. And... He's a handsome man, and when you really think about it, he is probably the most handsome member of the cast. Yeah. (laughs) But he has such a dorky little face. He can make his face dorky. That's what I mean. Like, he as an actor can turn something on to make him look like a dork, and that's the skill of of Josh Cox as Corwin. he He starts out as just like the the handsome sci-fi guy on the bridge. And then somewhere along the way, they said, hey, hey, can you play this guy nervous? Mm-hmm. He said, oh, baby, that's in my toolbox. I've got nervous written all over my face. Here we go. And he just switches, uh, he flicks a switch and it just happens. Whoever bought these must have paid a lot for him. Yes, I imagine. <laughs> Spending that kind of money on high-priced synthetics must be real dope. <laughs> yes. So he <laughs> was in Freaked. Freaked, is that the uh, uh, Alex Winter film? Yes. The guy from Bill and Ted, and it also has Keanu in it. Yes, Randy uh-huh. Craig. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize he was in that. Uh, he is in a film. He is in a film. <laughs> Rachel, is it is it as good as the last last guy's film called She's Too Tall? Which I found Pudgy out- Pudgy Wudgy Fudge Face. Pudgy Wudgy Fudge Face. Pudgy Wudgy yeah, you you haven't seen Pudgy Wudgy Fudge no. Face. You're just listing funny roles. Just, just that that exists. Somebody made that. Um, and then <laughs> I I just found found this funny. It's not so much interesting, but it's like listed that his brother-in-law is Matthew Braun. Mm-hmm. His wife I- is is uh, uh Wendy Braun, who's in a million things in her own right. Yeah, I think. It said that she had like 80 credits, but I was just like, who the fuck is Matthew Braun? He's a cinematographer, apparently. But like, that's number one trivia fact. Well, um, this is, of course, his style of roles where he does a lot of those criminal shows. Since he's a buff guy, he plays a lot of uh, cops and marines and soldiers. So he's in NCIS, Criminal Minds, The Mentalist, CSI, CSI Miami. He's done a lot of medical drama shows like General Hospital. And he was one of the leads in Strong Medicine, a thing that we that have discussed is, on this podcast before thing. with Richard Biggs who made a recurring guest role, and sadly, he passed away before his character would have been made a a main cast member in that series. But Josh Cox and Richard Big got to work off of each other shortly after 
doing Babylon 5. But even now, Josh Cox has moved into an interesting field of work, which is motion capture. He does the Horizon Zero Dawn games, and I found somewhere that he done a bunch of short films. They are like art films of some sort where he is having to do some physical tasks of some sort. So like he's jumping into water, he's on a big pole doing flips and things of that that nature. So his physique and his physicality is something that has been uh, really utilized in a lot of his work as well. And I, I, I'd really love to hear more about what it's like to work on like video games and do those like a uh, uh, video capture, like performance capture things. Cause that is just, it still feels like a brave new frontier of like what acting is nowadays, especially for a guy like this, who's like, Hey, he, this is Babylon five was one of his first roles. Like it was one of his early roles. He did Freddy's nightmare, quantum leaps, sliders, and then he slid into Babylon 5 during all of that. Now, was there any other TV shows or movies that leapt out to you or ones that you had seen no, him in before? those were the ones that I took note of. Well, I have a few interesting ones as well. So he was in The Last House on the Left remake. He was in NYPD Blue. Uh, yeah, I left that one for you. And you know who else was in that episode? Garibaldi. Jerry Doyle. That's correct. Jerry Doyle and Corwin, Josh Cox, are uh, one of the, they're like, two of the three people interviewed to be the potential uh, suspect of that episode. So they both went on to NYPD Blue quickly after this, like after all of this was done, but uh, yeah, that is uh, Josh Cox. He is active within the B5 community. A lot of convention uh, videos has him there, and it is very amusing that if you ever go to these videos and look at the comments, someone will ask who that guy is, and then they will be told it's Corwin, and it's always a shocked reaction because when you see him not in the uniform and you see him, you know, beyond the years of B5, he is almost unrecognizable because of just how fucking buff and handsome he is. But that is strange relations. What would you give it on our scale of yum being bad and yum yum being good? I don't like this episode. A lot of it. Like, I like it overall. But what I don't like about it on this viewing didn't spoil it for me. And I think that is partially because it's in isolation. We're doing it week to week. So it's just this episode. <laughs> I end up giving it a yum yum. Yum yum. I was going to give this a yum yum before we started the conversation because mm. it's a fun episode. Yeah. Season 5's beginning is often lumped in as bad because Byron exists and it's slow and plodding and it feels a lot like how we described last week's episode, Learning Curve. But I had a genuinely fun time with this. There are some things that annoy me. Wait, are you going to... I'm worried you're going to flip because I walked in thinking I was going to give it a yum. Listen, I was going to give it that purely because it was fun. But, but... The experience of breaking it down and talking about it 
moves it even further into yum yum. Yum yum. Because it's great to give something a yum yum because it's fun. Mm. But we like to be analytical on this podcast. So like we like to break stuff down. We like to get into the into the weeds of things. And if an episode can be something that actually is rewarding to do that with, then it definitely deserves a yum yum. I have more respect for what this episode was doing because of us talking about it rather than just saying to myself, oh, that was a fun watch and then tune in to the next episode. But talking about the next episode, let's find out what it is. On the next Babylon 5. Episode 7, Secrets of the Soul. The truth must be known. For Franklin, that means revealing the hidden genocide committed by the secretive Hayaks. For Byron, it means coming to terms with the disturbing origins of the telepaths. Ooh, they gave away all of the plot details in that one, Rachel. So, Secrets of the Soul is the lowest rated episode of season five. From my last look of the season on IMDb, this is the lowest rated episode. I remember it. Lowest of the uh, season. Yeah, just of the season. Of the season. In my recollection, it was bad. But I'm open to it. And I hope you listening people and yumlings out there are open to it as well. And Rachel is excited for it because... It's a Byron episode! Yay! Woo! Rachel, take us out. Where can people find us on the internet? They can find us under Yum Yum Pod or Yum Yum Podcast on the various social medias, including the ones that we have linked below in the description or beside or wherever the description is in relation to the podcatcher of choice that you are listening to this on. We are on all of those podcatching sites, including YouTube, so if you want to follow us and or subscribe to us on any of those, make sure to do so because our episodes come out pretty regularly. We like to make sure that they come out each week and you better not miss one. And if you haven't had the chance, please stop over and rate and review us on whatever podcast hosting site allows you to do so. We make bonus content over on our Patreon, so if you want to hear us discuss things such as, oh, I don't know, the Star Trek movies or even Strange New Worlds, uh, we do it over on our Patreon, and at the moment, we are watching through The Expanse for the first ever time. We are recording our thoughts on the episodes, and so if you are dying to hear what Rachel thinks of the amazing character of James Holden, then you should come on over to our Patreon and get some early access to that stuff. It's all there right now for you. All of this in the description below. But Rachel, it's time for us to end the episode. Mm-hmm. With, with Jakar going to Centauri Prime, he's going to get some good eating. Oh, You have no idea how much good eating he's going to have on Centauri Prime.